Good to have you all here this morning, and, and Lord, as we, uh, you can open your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah this morning. We're doing a little series in Jeremiah, and uh, just a, a couple weeks here as we start the new year off this morning. Um, a lot of people believe their future is determined and uh, that at best, we're just these unwilling, you might say, participants. Um, and sometimes our theology causes us to be a little bit fatalistic when it comes to the future. Uh, but I'm here to tell you the Bible does teach something a little bit different. Um, that by making the right decisions, by making the proper choices, by following the God who created you, that uh, your future can be different. And so we want to talk a little bit about shaping the future over the next couple of weeks. And hopefully that this will be practical. This would be something that you can start off the new year with. And uh, we find ourselves on the eve of this brand new year. And uh, it's kind of exciting whenever something new starts, right? Whether it's a new week or a new year, uh, whatever it might be. Um, a lot of times we want to start things all over again. Have you ever started a project and it just didn't work out and you wish you could put everything back in a box and just start over? Um, well, you can. And uh, someone penned these words. I don't know who it was. It was an unknown author. He wrote this. I went to the throne with a quivering heart. The year was done. Hast thou a new leaf for me, dear father? I said, I have spoiled this one. He took my leaf, all stained and blotted, and gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my sad heart smiled, do better now, my child. That's a refreshing thing to know, that we can do better in this new year. And our Father from heaven is about to take this old year, filled with all its failures, maybe, filled with the things that maybe we wish we wouldn't have said or wouldn't have done, the things that have been spoiled and spotted, and we can crumble it all up and we can discard it in the grave of God's forgetfulness. We're starting a new year, and that's good to know. Um, what we do with that new year is what? It's up to us, right? Um, it's up to us. And so today we're beginning this series, Shaping the Future. And uh, as we begin, I want to ask a couple questions of you. In whose hands should you place your future? Now, before you assume the obvious, I'll tell you that the answer, at least in part, that we're going to discover the next couple weeks may surprise you. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks examining this passage in Jeremiah uh, chapter 18. And uh, it's a wonderful section of Scripture. And if you've been in the church for any time, you probably have come across this, heard about Jeremiah going to the potter's workshop. And, and you've probably these verses, these 11 verses are rather familiar to you. But as we start this new year... A lot of people start the new year with the idea of hopefully this next year being a little more successful than the previous year, whether it be 
financially, whether it be spiritually, whether it be with your business, whatever it might be. There's a lot of people that this time of year preach messages dealing with uh, specifically uh, prosperity. And there's a whole errant teaching out there about the prosperity gospel, and we're not going to go there this morning. But I want to tell you this morning, just to give you a quick biblical definition of success. Success is nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, nothing but the progressive realization of the will of God for your life. If you take that to the bank, you will be successful. Understanding what the will of God is for you. Now the Bible tells us in a couple places what the obvious will of God is. And uh, first of all, the will of God involves your salvation. The Bible tells you that very clearly in 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's what he writes. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay? So one thing God desires of us is salvation. That's why he sent his son. That's why Christ went to the cross. That's why Christ died on the cross and rose on the third day to provide a sacrifice for us that would pay for our sins, that would allow us to have that opportunity of being forgiven of our sins. But God also, after we come to realization that God desire his will for us is to be saved he also desires for us to be sanctified and in first uh, thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 this verse is just an incredible verse because it tells you exactly what the will of god is for those who have trusted christ it says for this is the will of god your sanctification <laughs> sanctification is just a word that means set apart your holiness you might say that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So God desires you to be saved. He also desires you to be sanctified. And so if you could wrap up success in those two definitions, that would be the realization of the will of God for your life. See, a lot of people believe that success is being famous or success is not being poor. Um, It's neither one of those things. Success is not pleasure, nor is it pain. None of those things are fundamental to success. They're all incidental of it. If you're successful, then that's maybe how you are successful. But when you realize what the will of God is for your life, that just lays down a path of successfulness. In your life. In Jeremiah chapter 10, earlier on in Jeremiah, he says this in verse 23. He says, I know, O Lord, that the way of the man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks 
to direct his steps. What is that verse saying? That verse is simply saying, you know what? We don't have it within ourselves to always do the right thing, to figure this thing out. We have to rely on God. See, half of the trouble that we have in this life is wanting our own way. And the other half is when we get it. (laughs) When you stop and think about it, that's so true. Because half the time we don't even know what we need or what we want. But it's not within us to find our own way. That's why God sent his son. And God promised us in his word in various places. In an introduction today, I just want to share these verses with you. God has promised us that he will guide us in this new year. I mean, some of the most wonderful promises in the Bible talk about how we are able to know God's will for our lives. That's what he wants. And so as we look at these couple verses, you can just jot down the references. And um, I put the actual text up there on the slide so we don't have to be jumping around real quick. But the first one is in Isaiah 58, verse 11. It says, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. This is a promise from the God who created us, beloved, that he will guide us continually, not just some of the time, but all of the time. And not only that, but he says that he will make us like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You know, we have a spring at the church property at Jeddah where we live. And when we first moved in, I thought, boy, this will help our water bill. And I turned on the pump. Well, the spring runs for about five or ten minutes and then it's dry. (laughs) So it's not even worth it. But um, God promises that, you know what, that won't happen with him. He's not going to be there some of the time to guide you and to help you. He's going to be there all of the time. God's going to take care of you no matter what this new year has coming down the road. Because none of us really knows. That's exactly what this means, that he's going to satisfy your soul, whether it be in, in bountiful or in a drought. And sometimes we don't know what's going to happen economically or socially or financially in this world in which we live. But God will continue to guide us, not on and off. He's not going to be there some of the time. He's going to be there all of the time. In Psalm 32, verse 8, the psalmist writes this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you, listen to this, with my eye upon you. I mean, do you hear the intimacy there? God isn't saying up in heaven, yeah, you know, I got this thing. Don't worry about it. Uh, You know, I'll I'll see you when you get here. No, he's saying my eye is upon you. I mean, what a wonderful guidance that is. When you can guide somebody with your eye. For parents, that means it's just a look. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Kids are acting up and you just give them one little look. With your eyes, mother or father, and they know, uh uh-oh, I better straighten up. Same thing happens between a husband and wife if you live together long enough. You give each other that look, and you know, either I better shut up, better change the subject, better do something, but I better not continue to go down the path I'm going because I'm getting that eye, I'm getting that look. 
Now, people who are part of that table, maybe you're sitting at a table and you're talking and, and the wife gives the husband that look, kind of says, hey, don't go there. Nobody else really even knows what's going on. But you've seen that look a million times, and you know exactly what's going on. Nobody else does, because it's an intimate look. You can guide somebody even with your eyes. You don't even have to say anything. And see, God is doing that with us. He promises to do that. He says, I'll guide you with my eye upon you. And then also over in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, here's a, a great promise. God says, in all your ways, we know this verse, what? Acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And that's a promise that you can take to the bank. That's a promise that's true for anybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a, a preacher or a plumber. It doesn't really matter. That's a promise from God's word to us. Or even down in Psalm, verse 37, verse 23, here's another verse that deals with God guiding us. It says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Notice it says, The steps of a man. Okay, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. In other words, God's put some forethought into this life of ours. He's got some things planned for us that we don't even know yet. And God, step by step, day by day, he wants to lead us. He wants us to be delighted in the way that he wants us to go. So many times we want to go our own way. Uh, God has a specific plan for you. He really does. God has a will for your life. He has a will for my life. And our job as believers is to say, okay, God, I want to follow that will. I want to follow that direction. I don't want to go off and do my own thing. And so many times that's where we find ourselves, isn't it? So God watches over us. The Bible tells us he cares so much for us, even the hairs on our head are numbered. It's not too hard for some of us, but... Others of you have a lot of hair. He tells us that even when a sparrow falls from a tree, and it doesn't mean fall out of the tree, it just means hop from branch to branch. Our Heavenly Father takes notice. He notices things like that. See, so to, the, the idea that God has no plan for your life, God has a plan for your life. Now, all of the plans that God has for our lives are not the same other than the two I just mentioned, that he desires us to be saved, he desires us to be sanctified. But when you get down to the details, God's plan for your life is probably not God's plan for my life. Don't you hate that when people think that God's plan for their life is God's plan for everybody's life? And they go around telling everybody what they should be doing based upon what God has shown them? See, God's plan for you is unique. Why? Because you're unique. I mean, even though we're a small church, just look around the church, we're all different. We all come from different sections of the country or the world even. We all come bringing cultural baggage, cultural influences, whether they be good or bad, to the table. And God knows each and every one of us better than anybody else. And so we have to be careful 
when we look at God's will for our lives, we don't want to pattern that will after somebody else. You know, there's nothing wrong with having role models. There's nothing wrong with with having people that you uh, respect and look up to. But please realize that God doesn't want you to be them. He wants you to be yourself. And he wants you to do what he has laid out for you to do. And so this morning I want to talk about this. It's not over till it's over. And as we start this new year, I trust it's going to be a wonderful year. I trust that next year we can look back on this year and truly say, wow, God, thank you for your faithfulness. That you have taken me through yet another year. Um, It's not just like any other day, and yet it really is like any other day. There's nothing different about tomorrow than today. It's still going to have 24 hours. We're still going to have to get up. We're still going to have to brush our teeth, take a shower, do whatever we do. But it's going to be different because it's a new year. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, This month shall be the beginning of months to you. And it has the idea of giving them a fresh start. How many of you make resolutions every year? Anybody here make resolutions? I used to. And, you know, in my head, I still think I do sometimes, you know. I still think, well, i got to work out a little more. i got to do this a little more, do that a little more, be a little more committed in this area. And I don't write them down anymore because usually by the end of January, it's just sad, you know. <laughs> you look at the list and you're going, oh, man. Um, now, there's some people that really are motivated by resolutions, and they make them, and boy, they keep them, and they're bound to them, and, and they're very faithful to them, and that's, that's just wonderful. But I think sometimes the resolutions I make just go in one year and out the other. You know, it just doesn't really connect. And so I, I want you to know this morning that as we prayerfully consider this new year, as we look at this passage in Jeremiah, Um, I want to give you a little bit of background. Jeremiah chapter 18, you can find that right after the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Just a little bit of background as we begin this little series. Um, Because today, I think most of us would say that we live in a world, we live in a society where, for the most part, God is forgotten. (laughs) Especially here in the United States, when you look at the history upon which this nation was founded, and then today, and we think, wow, what happened? I mean, we have people just going full-blown into all kinds of sinful behavior. They're giving full expressions to the reprobate mind. If you want a commentary on that, read the first chapter of Romans. It tells us what happens when people forget God. And that's the country in which we live. Even you see the justice system, you see uh, organizations like the FBI, the Department of Justice being called into question over certain things. Everything seems to be breaking down. It seems that that man has gone beyond the bounds that God has set. And here we lie on the brink of a new year looking at what it may hold for us. But I think our nation, for the most part, is no longer could be classified a Christian nation. Because I really believe that, for the most part, most people have forgotten about God. Now, they would say that they're Christian, maybe in the words, 
But as far as living for Christ each and every day, I don't see that. Pretty much a lot of people want to mock God. A lot of people want to make light of who Christ is. And see, Jeremiah is this one who brings to the table a word from God because he was a prophet. And the day and age that Jeremiah was doing this, as he was getting ready to give these prophecies that God laid upon his heart to the people, it was right before judgment was coming to pass. And so he's living really in a time, you might say, of Holocaust. It's 80 to 100 years after Isaiah. So Isaiah has a bunch of prophecies, and those prophecies actually take place during Jeremiah's ministry. Isaiah, if you remember what he said, he said that judgment was coming. And what Jeremiah is saying is that, you know what, it's not coming, it's here. It's here right now. So Jeremiah says that the Babylonians are going to arrive, and the Babylonians are going to slaughter you, and the Babylonians are going to take you into captivity. He's speaking to the the people of Israel there. And it's exactly what happened. The prophet was true. The prophet was a true prophet. And so Jeremiah stood on the edge of this apparent judgment that was going to fall. And he was really telling the people, this is, the glory days are over. This is something that's it's not going to go on business as usual. And a lot of the prophecies that Jeremiah gave here in Judah were rushing down to the, the final moments of catastrophe when the political scene was filled with confusion when the worst passions in people's hearts were made known when you saw sin on every corner and people forgot god Jeremiah was the one, he was the prophet of, you might say, the midnight hour. Some commentators say that Isaiah prophesied at 11 o'clock, and Jeremiah prophesied at midnight. Jeremiah preached for 42 years. That's a long time. I mean, when you stop and think of that, 42 years he was ministering to the southern kingdom of Judah. And back in the 6th century, on behalf of God, just ministering. He was known as what? The weeping prophet. Because of all the sorrow that he had to share with people and that he experienced. And during his reign, during his time of ministry, he he had to deal with five kings. And the first of those kings was a guy named Josiah. And Josiah was a good king, one of the few. (laughs) If you read about the Old Testament, you know that Josiah was a a, a good king. And near the end of the reign of Josiah, there was a period of, of reformation, you might call it, in Judah. Some people say it was a time of revival. Now, if you read anything about Josiah, you know that after a period of time, he realized that the people were worshiping idols and false gods, and he went into those places where they had these 
altars erected uh, to these false gods, and he tore them all down. And he said, you know what? We're going to worship the true God. That's a good thing. And so he led this great reformation of the people. He tore down all these high places that they, they used to worship the idols. He removed all the idolatry from the land of Judah. He was a great reformer. But before all this happened, there was a prophetess named Huldah. And she said this, Josiah, you're going to lead a reformation. But you know what? It's not going to have any permanent results. That's a paraphrase. That's basically what she said. She's saying all your efforts will not last beyond your own lifetime. And the reason is this. And this is the reason this prophet gave that these reformations would not last. He says, the people will follow you because they are attracted to you as a person, not because they are truly attracted to God. And when I think of that, I mean, I can't help but believe that that really describes the Christian world today. You have people attracted to somebody because of the way they look or the suit they wear or the way they talk. It has little to do with the message that they're bringing to bear upon the hearts of the people. And so the revival in Judah during this time was a revival based on the king, Josiah, not on God. And he was, obviously, he must have been a charismatic individual with a good personality, kind of a celebrity. He was attractive to human beings, and the people followed Josiah through this reform. But you know what? As you read the history, the moment Josiah died, guess what happened? The reform ended. It was all over. It just stopped. I served one time with a pastor who had a really big personality. And as we were going through the interview process, he said, I guarantee you if I come to this church, this church will grow to 250, maybe more people, based on my experience. And if you want me to come, you have to pay me this amount. And it wasn't a little amount. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this guy is really full of himself. I mean, what a claim to make. But you know what? They hired him, and he came, and you know what? The church grew to about the number he said. It was during that time they let me go, and they hired another, or he wanted to hire another youth pastor. I was there for two years with him. And you know what? I mean, I thought that was my first and last church. I just thought, I was very naive in ministry. I didn't understand how things worked. And, and I remember when, when I was let go, it was on my birthday. <laughs> just, you know, it's like, man, this guy has no heart, you know. And he didn't even do it himself. He sent two deacons who were really good friends of mine over, and they were kind of beside themselves. They didn't know what to do. And, and I said, that's fine, you know, whatever. And so I just kind of left quietly. But within six months, he left that church. And you know what happened to that church? It doesn't even exist today. It used to be First Baptist Church of Fremont. It's not there anymore. It just imploded. Why? Because that guy had such a personality. He was fun to work. I had a good time with him. I mean, he always was, we were always going out to eat. We were always doing different stuff. But he had it down to kind of like a little stick. You know, you just come in, you do this, you preach these sermons, and, and boy, God just blesses, and, and then you move on to the next church. What the problem was, it was all based on his personality. So when he left, well, all the people left. 
And the church just literally died. And that's what happened during this time with Josiah the king. It was all built around this reformation. The people were doing what Josiah wanted to do, wanted them to do because of who he was. A lot of times in modern day Christianity, there's a lot of things that are attached to personalities, isn't there? Think about it. I mean, when someone of a celebrity kind of background, whether it's an actor or a singer, somebody gets saved, what's the first thing somebody does? They grab them, they put them on stage, and they say, give us your testimony. They don't even know what a testimony is. They haven't been discipled. They don't understand anything, but you know what? They're a big name. They'll, they'll draw a lot of people. So let's just plug them in and let them share their story. And that's unfortunate because a lot of times people like that crash and burn because either their faith isn't legitimate or they haven't been given the tools to understand their faith very well and make a lot of mistakes along the way. But that's kind of what happened here with Josiah. These people followed him, but they were just preoccupied with who he was. Well, after Josiah passed on, there was a king by the name of Jehoaz. And he was only on the throne for three months. That's how bad he was. Just a bad king, real bad guy. And after that, it was followed by Jehoiakim. And this guy, just three months after Josiah died, he went back and he restored all of the the false altars to the idols. He restored all the false worship. Just the things that Josiah had eliminated. And Jehoiakim was followed by Jehoiakim, who also ruled for three months, and he was also bad. And then there was a fifth king in Jeremiah's life named Zedekiah. And he was just kind of a coward. So we threw him in the bad, bad column too. Because even though he saw everything that was going on, he just couldn't make a decision. He was very vacillating and kind of weak, coward guy. And so you had Josiah all the way to Zedekiah, these five kings that Jeremiah served under as a prophet. And then you had this phony revival and these four bad kings. And basically it all ended in a, in a holocaust, you might say. Israel was slaughtered. It was led into Babylonian captivity where the Bible says that they hung their harps on the willows because they had no more song to sing. In other words, it just sucked the life right out of these people. The glory days were truly gone. The land was decimated. And for 42 years, Jeremiah preached. And you know what? For 42 years, it got worse. (laughs) I mean, talk about being discouraged. No wonder he was a weeping prophet. Jeremiah preached during the time of Josiah because Jeremiah knew that the prophecy concerning all this was true, that this wasn't a real revival. This is just some surfacey thing. It wasn't real reformation. It was a facade. But Jeremiah knew because he was a prophet of God what was coming. He knew inevitably that there was going to be judgment He wasn't fooled on the surface by what appeared to be revival. 
And a lot of times we look around and because we elect a, a certain politician or we, we don't or whatever, we think, oh, it's going to be revival. <laughs> that has nothing to do with that. Revival begins in the heart of God's people. That's where revival begins. There's a lot of revival activity going on within the, the realm of Christianity today, and I really want to question its validity because I don't see it being transferred over into the, the lifestyle of these people. They're real quick to name the name of Christ, but Christ is having little or no effect on their everyday life. And so, here's what we're looking at this morning. The people of Judah had sinned against God at this point. He had pronounced judgment upon them. He told them that these Babylonians were going to come and they're going to invade their land, cause great destruction, and take many of them as captives. And so, knowing that this invasion was imminent, the people undoubtedly were downhearted. They were despondent. Some were probably going to say, is this going to be the end of our nation? Are we going to get wiped off the earth? What's going to happen? And and it was right in the midst of all that gloom, of all that chaos, of all that despair, that God spoke to Jeremiah, and he reminded Jeremiah of three important truths that I think that we can apply to ourselves. And so with that in mind, let's read the first 11 11 chapters, 11 verses of chapter 18 of Jeremiah, and then we'll look at these three uh, truths briefly. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in this potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evils, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare the concerning, de- declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. That's kind of a sobering message, isn't it? Can you imagine being Jeremiah delivering that message? Um, some of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Yogi Berra, coach. And he says some of the weirdest things he used to. Uh, he said things like, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. What does that even mean? Or a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Okay. 
The future ain't what it used to be. He once said this at a pizza place. He says, you better cut the pizza in four pieces because I'm not hungry enough to eat six. (laughs) Kind of a sense of humor. He also gave this advice. Always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But one thing that he was known for, one of his sayings that went down was this. Basically, and it kind of nails it. It ain't over till it's over. And that's true. And that's what I'm here to share with you this morning. No matter how things look in your life right now as you sit here this morning, it's not over till it's over. See, those are words that we can hold on to. Those are words that we can live by. I think a lot of times... We think that the way things are going today or maybe things aren't working out that, uh, you know what, there's no hope. Um, the economy is not looking good or whatever is looking good. Either way, it's not going to be the same. Nothing stays the same. Whether it's your business, whether it's a relationship, it comes, it goes, it ebbs, it toe, up and down, ebbs and flows. All those things happen. But at the same time, there's encouragement through that because God is there for us. Things won't always be like they are today. Sometimes they'll get worse. Um, And that's what Jeremiah is kind of sharing here. And, And God uses a unique way of taking him to this potter at his wheel. And the idea is there's still time on the clock. You give 100% until you, that, that buzzer sounds at the end of the game. And see, we need to really understand that as a church, as individual Christians, we're not to give into all this information sometimes that we receive, thinking, oh, wow, you know what, we're on the losing end of this. No, I read the end of the book. You know what, we win when we're on God's side. And so it's very important that we understand that going into this new year. And so... Three reasons here why, no matter what you're going through in your life, you can make sure that it's not over till it's over. The first reason is this. The potter is at the wheel. That's what he says here. He says, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. That's what a potter does. He works at a potter's wheel. The potter really symbolizes the Lord here. Jeremiah makes it a point that the potter is at the wheel. It's another way simply of saying, you know what? God is in control. God is in control of this thing. Even though it seems like it's coming unhinged at times, God is in control. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes it doesn't even appear that way. Sometimes it looks like we're just this lump of clay spinning out of control on this potter's wheel without anyone in control. But you know what? The Bible tells us a different story. It says even though sometimes that's may, it may feel or it may look that way, there is a potter. And he is sitting at the wheel of this world and even your life as an individual. The Bible says that he's shaping us, he's molding us, he's making us into the person that he desires us to be. With all the good, the bad, everything, he's, he's making it 
happen. I read something interesting this past week that in these icy waters surrounding the island of Greenland, there's a lot of icebergs. And uh, some are pretty small, some are really big. And scientists figured out that if they watch these icebergs closely, the small icebergs move in one direction and the large icebergs move in another direction. Kind of weird. So they did a study and they, deci- they discovered that the smaller icebergs are driven by the surface wind because they're small. So the wind may be blowing north. Well, the icebergs, the little icebergs move north. Whereas the larger icebergs go down deep into the water. They're much bigger in mass. And they're actually carried along not by the wind. The wind's blowing. It doesn't even affect those big icebergs. But what carries them along are the deep currents in the ocean. So you have big icebergs going this way and little icebergs going that way. Kind of a weird thing. You can't see the currents. But they're there. And see, a lot of times that's kind of how life is. You know, uh, that's the illustration that's there for us. You may not see what's really going on under, underneath everything, but, but God does. Maybe some of you heard of Bertrand Russell. He was... Early in the 20th century, a version of Richard Dawkins. He was an outspoken critic of religion, said he was an atheist. And once he was asked that what he would say if he met his maker after his death, what he would say to that. And his response was this, God, you gave us insufficient evidence. He was a scientist. Dawkins who's never really original in his thinking, said the same thing. He just used that quote. But there's a lot of people that feel that way, unfortunately. Um, See, God exists primarily, you might say, in those deep ocean currents of life. You know, you can't really define him mathematically. He doesn't get up every morning and hold a press conference for us. And some people just conclude, you know what? I don't think he exists. Um, but when you stop and you begin to look at how he is involved intricately in our lives, in our world, it doesn't take much to realize that there is a God and that he is in control. He is that potter sitting at the wheel. Scientists recently have discovered that when they study the brain, they still can't decide They don't understand where the actual decisions are being made. They kind of know the region, but they can't really pinpoint. And you stop and you think about all the studies and research that go into something as kind of simple as that. We want to know where exactly these decisions are being made. There's evidence to that. You know, we make decisions every day. I'm still not at home looking in the closet, wondering what tie my wife picked out for me today and whether I'm going to wear it or not. No, I made that decision. Or she made that decision for me, I should say. (laughs) See, God may not be what you, you call empirically discernible, but he's intuitively discernible. 
If you look for God, the Bible says you will find him. Just look around. Look at creation. Later in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, 13, he says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So if you're of the persuasion to look for God, you will find him. If you just simply close your eyes and decide he doesn't exist, you won't. It's as simple as that. And so, first of all, we have to understand that this potter is at the wheel. See, one reason why you should never give up on your future is because the potter's at the wheel. God's in control. Well, the second thing here is that the potter can transform a mistake into a masterpiece. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good for the potter to do. Since the potter's at the wheel, does that mean you're never going to have any problems in your life? Does that mean if you come to Christ that, boy, it's just, you know, smooth sailing? No. You're going to have issues. You're going to have pain. You're going to have disappointment. All those things. The King James Version of that verse says, the vessel he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter. Another translation says, the vessel was broken, which he was making with the clay. Another translation says, but the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped for. (laughs) See, there are times when the clay in our life gets marred. It may get broken. It may get dented. There are times in our lives when things may not turn out the way you want. They may turn out different from the way even God wants them. But I want you to understand this. Even though we understand that God is sovereign, right? He is in control. He is the potter sitting at the wheel. It's important to understand that that God does not dictate and design everything that happens. That's what you would say is a theology of fatalism. Now, that may be hard to hear because we do believe God is in control of of all things. And some people have a hard time believing that. And so those people want to blame everything on God. You know, they, they want to blame every bad thing on God, on the will of God. Um, sometimes something horrendous happens to somebody. Maybe a loved one's killed in an auto crash or something. And this kind of person who has this kind of thinking of fatality, well, it must have just been God's will. If it wasn't God's will, it wouldn't happen. I remember years ago in an election, political election, a politician was asked that if a woman becomes pregnant during a sexual assault, does God intend, what's God's intentions for the fetus or whatever? And the politician kind of reacted. And what they said was, well, it was obviously the plan of God for that woman to go through that. 
Now, I don't know where they got that from the Bible. I don't think they did. Because, you know, the last time I checked, God is not the author of sin. He doesn't delight in sin. Sin happens under the sovereign hand of God. And that's very clear for us to understand. But there are many things that happen to us that are not within the will of God. For one, the Bible says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what the Bible says. What does that mean? He may not be willing for anyone to perish, but last time I checked and I looked around, there's a lot of people perishing. (laughs) There's a lot of people who are not repenting. There are a lot of people who are resisting the will of God. That's why Jesus told us to pray that God's will be done on earth, what? As it is in heaven. What does that imply? Well, in heaven, everything is the way it ought to be. Is it here? No. See, God's will isn't always done on earth. If it were, that line in the, the Lord's Prayer would really wouldn't mean anything. God's will doesn't always take place on earth as it does in heaven. Things happen here that are outside the will of God. And you say, well, how are you defining the will of God? Well, there's, you know, the, the, the general will of God, and then there's the specific will of God. And what he's saying here in Jeremiah is that, you know what, sometimes the jar doesn't turn out the way he had hoped. Well, when that happens, what did Jeremiah say next? In verse 4, he says, so he crushed it into a lump of clay and started again, started over. He reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good for the potter to do. See, the idea that our lives after we come to Christ are this perfect little life and everything just goes on within the will of God is... it's. That's a fairy tale. That's not real reality. We still live in a sinful body. We still live in a sinful world. We're still given to desires sometimes of the flesh. So things happen outside the will of God. But listen, nothing happens outside of the control of God. Nothing happens outside of the control of God. There's no situation beyond His reach beyond his control, beyond his power to redeem. He can take the broken parts of our lives and shape them into something beautiful. You remember that song by Bill Gaither? He wrote back in the 70s. If there ever were dreams that were lofty and noble, they were my dreams at the start. And the hopes for life's best were the hopes that I harbored down deep in my heart. But my dreams turned to ashes. My castles are crumbled. My fortune turned to loss. So it, wrapped, so it wrapped it all in the rags of my life, and I laid it at the cross. So I wrapped it all in the rags of my life, and I laid it at the cross. And he made something, and this is the chorus, beautiful, something good. All my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. And he made something beautiful of my life. 
That's just a simple little chorus. But you know what? That's what God is capable of doing. Sometimes the clay in our life gets marred because of our bad decisions, because of our sinful behavior. Sometimes it gets marred due to the bad decisions of others who may be in our lives. Those experiences are not God's perfect will for our lives, but he can take those bad experiences and use them to shape something good. Some people ask this simple question, well, why do we have to experience any bad at all? Why does anything bad have to happen? Why can't God just intervene and and make all the bad disappear? Why can't he just stop it before it happens? Well, if you've ever parented a child, and that child's growing up, and sometimes those children make bad decisions, probably the, the worst thing you could do is just intervene right away and correct everything. Constantly correct everything. So that they never feel the consequences of their bad decisions. The hardest thing to do is to sit back and watch your child make bad decisions and be there to catch them when they fall. But to realize, you know what? This is part of life. This is part of growing up. Sooner or later, they're going to be on their own and they're going to make bad decisions and I'm not going to be there to pick them up or to hold them. See, that's how God is involved in our lives. Sometimes we make sinful, bad decisions, and God is in heaven, could he step in and say, oh, I'm not going to let you do that? Yeah, but he doesn't. Because it doesn't go to the greater purpose of God. As I said, it's salvation and sanctification. Part of being sanctified, part of being made more holy, is going through that process. You know, God didn't give you cancer. God didn't create Maybe the the financial issues that you have. God didn't sabotage your marriage. We need to stop blaming God for the sins of the world and start seeking his help. And, And when we do that, God is there to help us. He's there every step of the way. He can take all those blotches, all those mistakes, of that marred clay and, and make them into a masterpiece. He can redesign anything for his glory. So don't give up on the future, even though the year hasn't started yet. The third thing I want to share with you this morning is God will shape your future if you're willing to be the clay. And this is the illustration here in Jeremiah, is it not? Kind of a lump of clay on a potter's wheel. You can be cold, you can be old, you can be brittle, you can be impliable, or you can be moldable, you can be changeable. That's really a decision that we have to make in life. You remember that old hymn that says, Have, your own, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. You are the potter, what? I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. See, so many times we get on that potter's wheel, we're doing all kind of dances to get off because we don't like those hands coming around us and forcing us and molding us and shaping us into the image that he wants us to be. 
I mean, just the fact that you're a hunk of clay. I mean, you know, a, a clay doesn't just jump off the potter's wheel. It doesn't have a, even a will of its own. And so we're there to be molded. We're there to be shaped. Isaiah 64, 8 says, Oh, Father, you are the Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. See, God is doing a specific work with you. Even today as you sit here, I don't know what it is. I'm not God. But God does. God knows if you've come to Christ and if, if you've made that decision and you've passed that first step of salvation, are you being sanctified each and every day? Are you asking God to show you what he wants you to do rather than just going off on your own and figuring it out for yourself? I mean, when the clay of life gets marred, there's not much you can do about it. You have to sit there on the potter's wheel. Some people think that somehow they say, you know what, I'm not going to yield control of my life to God. So what do they do? They yield control of their life to this random wheel spinning out of control, and they think somehow they're in control. Have you ever seen anybody work with clay? You know, we had uh, years ago a potter's ministry here, and to see that man take this lump of clay and make this beautiful vase out of it right before our eyes, it was incredible. But if you've ever sat down at a potter's wheel and took a lump of clay and turned that wheel on and it started spinning, it's not easy. You know, you don't just go, this is great, you know. I tried it one time, it was a big mess. I mean, I had clay over everybody, all over myself. It was falling off the wheel, you know, it was pushing too hard. And I mean, it takes a skill. And it's a skill that we don't possess. But the good thing is God is the potter. He is the one in control. And when in verse 5 he says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? So he's giving that example. Here's Israel that was, you know, kind of really messed up big time. And God simply says, you know what? I can just go and start over. That's what God wants to do with you, with me in this new year. But you have to sit on the potter's wheel. You have to feel those fingers and those hands pushing you and molding you and shaping you in maybe a way that you don't naturally want to go. The reason this life is not over till it's over is because the potter is still at the wheel. He is still in control. There's a current working way below the surface. Even though we don't see it, we don't sense it, God is in control of these things. And he can take that mistake, he can take that sinfulness, he can take all those things that we have done in our life that have not been honoring to him, and he can turn them around. He can remold them, refashion them. Even heartache, even our sin, he can take it and use it for his ultimate glory. When we simply are willing to say, Lord, have thine own way. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.
And Lord, I pray that, Lord, as we continue to look at this illustration in Jeremiah of the potter and the potter wheel, Lord, that as we embrace this new year, that we would realize that you are the potter at the wheel. And our life is that lump of clay. And you can transform that life into a masterpiece that will give you glory for all eternity. When we simply are willing to yield our lives to you and be the clay, be pliable, be moldable, knowing that it's for your honor and your glory that we desire this. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here this morning who is yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, please know that, or folks, please know that there's a God in heaven who knows you, desires to know you personally. He knows everything about you. There's nothing you're hiding from him. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything. He wants you to bring it to him. And he wants you to trust him to turn it into something that will give him honor and glory. But he can't do that unless we we come to him with a repentful heart, with a heart that's sorry for the mess that we made. When we come with that attitude that says, Lord, I, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I've done with my life, but I know it's not pleasing to you. God, here it is. Here's the mess. I want to believe that Jesus is the answer. I want to believe that he did die for my sins. I want to believe that he will make a difference in my life. And I cry out to you. Show me your will. Show me your desire for me. Help me to turn from my sin to the Savior. He'll do that even this morning as you trust him as your Lord and Savior. For believers, I just pray that as we leave this place and embrace this new year, that you would give us all a a moment to pause and to really desire to trust in you each and every day, each and every moment, for your will to be done in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you hold us in the, the palm of your hand, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Father, we thank you for that security that we all share together as the body of Christ. And we pray that we will go out from this place and share the message of the the gospel of Christ to those who have yet to hear. We thank you and pray you bless our fellowship time across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name, amen.